Amen. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Ruth chapter 4 this morning. Ruth chapter number 4. And I'm going to mention this, um, something concerning Sunday school. We had a good conversation, and I, I'm trying to remember exactly what I said about Armageddon, and I don't remember what I said in Sunday school. And I'm, I'm not sure that I would be able to stand by what I said. Um, so I want to go back and revisit that. It won't be the subject matter for next week's Sunday school, but in the off chance that somebody hears it and, and then goes, what? what did he say? Is he a lunatic? Yes, he's a lunatic. Um, but he tries very hard not to be a heretic. And so uh, the lunacy is beyond, beyond repair, but the heresy is, can be remediated. So that's, that's the hope there. Of course, if they heard me say something out of, out of sync in Sunday school and then never come back, they won't know that I tried to make it right. So, uh, yeah. Ruth chapter number four. Let's go ahead and stand, please, this morning. And we will read the entirety of the chapter, and this morning we'll mark our concluding time in this, in this book. Ruth chapter four, verse number one. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there, and behold... The kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such an one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. <clears throat> For there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing, for to confirm all things. A man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day, that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, and all that was Kilian's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, 
which to build the house of Israel, which to did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem, and let thy house be like the house of Pharez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, she was his wife, when he went in unto her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, and a nourisher of thine own age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child, laid it in her bosom, and became nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Pharez. Pharez begat Hezron, Hezron begat Ram, Ram begat Aminadab, Aminadab begat Nation, Nation begat Salmon, Salmon begat Boaz, Boaz begat Obed, Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. And we will stop there. Let's pray. Father. How pleasant are your dwelling places. Thank you that we may gather together as your people. Thank you that you have gathered yourself with us, both individually in the indwelling of your spirit and the presence of your son in our services this day. Father, it is our prayer that we would come to know you by those things that you tell us about yourself, by the actions you have taken. And we rejoice in this story and pray your blessing upon it for our nourishment in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, like any good story, this one has a happy ending. It actually has two happy endings, I think. <clears throat> It has a happy ending that comes to Naomi, and we want to remember always when we read the book of Ruth, that Naomi is the recipient of much of the attention that the story is about her daughter-in-law, but it is a story to Naomi, the mother-in-law. The second happy ending is one that Naomi would never know about, at least not in this life. It is an ending that comes much, much later in history. And yet it is one in which Naomi and Ruth, just like us, have a tremendous interest. We are all, folks, vitally interested in David. We all have a tremendous influence, interest in where he stands in the Bible story. The book of Ruth is a beautiful story, uh, a, a, a fabulously told story with lots of drama and lots of tension, with unanswered questions, with problems that need to be resolved, that God resolves beautifully. Along the way of learning about God's redemption, we learn about the providential way that he works about the frailty of our humanity, 
about the feebleness of our faith. And yet it is real faith, even if it is very weak faith. And this morning then we come to the end of that story and let's look at how God tells us of that. In verses 1 through 13, which we will not go back and reread, but we see the firmness of God that secures our standing. The firmness of God that secures our standing. One thing about the Lord, folks, is that He is never boring. Ruth is <clears throat> looking for food. Right? She just, she just got to go out and find something to eat. She needs a job. And of the jobs that are available to a widow Moabitish woman in her world, gathering in somebody else's field is the option. She stumbles upon the man who will become her husband. Boaz is a godly man. And one of the things that we have not explored in any way, shape, or form in our morning services is his marital state. I have pretty much addressed him as an unmarried man, but is he? Is he a widower? Does he have another wife? The marital state of Boaz is never discussed, it is never raised, it is never addressed. He is simply an eligible interested man and that is the way he is treated Naomi notices this and picks up upon this in a way that is lost on Ruth Ruth is thinking about food Naomi is thinking about bigger things than just the next meal and so she come, devises a plan for Naomi to capture Boaz's attention or for to be brought into awareness of Boaz's attention and Boaz acts honorably, and again, without going back to revisit, it's been a couple of weeks since we were in chapter 3, but there's nothing in Ruth chapter 3, folks, that should raise any moral red flag. Their conduct is exemplary. A little unusual, but in no way questionable. And so now, <clears throat> having informed Ruth, that while he would like nothing better than to buy the land and to buy her to be his wife, there is a little bit of an impediment in that, there's, that there is a closer kinsman. Another twist to the story that we did not anticipate. And so Boaz does what people in his world do. And it's fascinating, folks, just on kind of a side note, the way that God tells a story in anticipation that people who are not Israelites will read it. It was the custom in those days. This was how you transacted legal business. Can you imagine, folks? Can you imagine walking into the local car dealership and negotiating your best price on an automobile and being brought before the sales manager who says, well, there's nothing left but now but for you to take off your shoe and we'll close the deal. And you take off your shoe and hand it to him, and you drive away in your new car. Having promised to make the payments, 
That is the way business was transacted. He went to the public place, the equivalent of the courthouse, where the elders of the city, the ruling men, the old men, sat and transacted business, waited for the closer kinsmen to come by, invited him over, laid it all out to him, completely honest and upright. There's a parcel of land. Would you like to buy it? I'd love to buy it. If you buy it, you also have to buy Ruth. Oh, that would mar my inheritance. You buy it. I takes off his shoe. The transaction is done. Ruth comes with it, folks, if I could recover your memory, because of Deuteronomy chapter 25. Ruth is part of the land purchase because of this concept that is known as Leverite marriage. What happens when a brother dies and there are no children? How do we maintain and preserve that family lineage in the land? We have this concept of Leverite marriage. The next brother must marry the woman. And not just simply marry her in the legal sense. They must attempt at least to have children so that the name does not go out. It is that concept, by the way, of Leverite marriage that the Sadducees used to try and trap Jesus because they had concluded that if Leverite marriage is true, there couldn't possibly be a resurrection. How many wives would a man have in the resurrection? And let me suggest to you what I I think the takeaway for us is, right? It's not just part of the story. It's not just another twist in something that is designed to hold our attention. But it is reflective of this. Just as Boaz took every necessary step to secure Ruth to himself, So the Lord takes every necessary and appropriate step to secure our salvation, which is why I said verses 1 through 13 reveal to us that the firmness of God secures our standing. If you want to turn to it, let me ask you to turn to Romans chapter 3, and I'll try to illustrate what I mean. I'm not saying the story of Ruth, folks, covers every theological possibility, but rather it reflects the commitment on a part of a man. Boaz could have said, ethically, honestly, legally, legitimately to to Ruth and to Naomi, I can't help you. I can't help you. There There is another relative, and you need to deal with him. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse number 22, Paul writes, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. The righteousness of God comes to us through Jesus Christ, is what Paul is arguing there. The necessary righteousness for our security, for our salvation, for our right standing before God is the righteousness of God that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And there is no difference. And and the difference there really within the framework of the letter at this point is there's no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. Not there's no difference between you and your spouse or you and your neighbor. 
there's no difference between you and a Jew. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins through the forbearance of God. And again, folks, if, I, if we could just stop there for a moment and let me point out to you something that, that Paul kind of uses a couple of times in the book of Romans as an illustration of the way God views human sins is if they are a gigantic mound of trash that is always building. And, and every time we sin, the pile of trash just gets larger. And it, it becomes more to our detriment. It never goes away. It never degrades, it never decomposes, it just lays there festering and growing and stinking and we keep adding sins to it, it keeps building and building. And God's anger towards it keeps building and building as the pile of trash gets larger and larger. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, calming God down. Not in a psychological, out-of-control sense, but propitiation deals with the anger that God feels towards the sin of men. For the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Why don't you do something, God, about this big pile of human trash, their sin? Well, I'm waiting. That's the real answer. I'm waiting. I'm going to deal with it. I'm waiting. By putting it upon his son, Romans 3.26, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Look, we don't necessarily think of it as the impediment. Right? But God's got this big pile of stinking human sin that he cannot ignore, that he cannot just sweep away, that he's got to address that has to be righteously judged. He cannot just simply sweep it away and go, well, we'll just pretend that didn't happen. So it all gets borne by Christ. This is a true impediment, folks. How to save sinful humanity and retain one's own integrity. This is not always an easy thing to do, even at a very simple human level. Right? When the police officer pulls you over, what do you want? You want him to go leniently with you. His boss, and hopefully you don't get pulled over, but right? you, want him to, you want him to treat you leniently. Just, just give me a warning or just ignore it. But he's also under a charge. His, his, he wasn't hired to just let people off the hook. We deal with this all the time, not all the time, but we've dealt with it a number of times in a church setting or even particular, more so in a school setting. Right here's somebody who's committed a real wrong. What do you do? Do you just close your eyes and turn away? What, what do you do? These are, these are difficult 
problems. They are difficult solutions. They are frequently situations in which there don't, doesn't appear to be a very great answer to the question. If we ignore something, does it look bad? Does it dishonor the Lord? If we're gracious, does it look weak? Does it dishonor the Lord? This is a huge problem that the Lord had to address, maintaining his own righteousness and cleaning up human sin. The firmness of God is the stability of our position. God had a way. He bore, he maintained his integrity and dumped all of his wrath on Christ and then raised him from the dead. So that when Jesus does say about our sin on the cross, it is finished. It is truly finished. It is truly cleansed. And it is the faithfulness of God as illustrated, I think, by the faithfulness of Boaz, the man committed to do right by Ruth, but to do really right by Ruth. It proves our security. Let me just read to you. You're in Romans chapter 3. You can go if you want to Romans chapter 8. But let me read to you Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 6. This is what God said to the Jews. Malachi comes, of course, at the end of the Old Testament. The Jews have been a people and a faithless people and sent into captivity brought back from captivity, rebuilt the temple, failed again in their practice of true religion. Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, this is why, you sons of Jacob aren't consumed. Not that you don't deserve it. Not that I couldn't justify it but because I don't change. Made a promise, made a commitment. Said that you are my people and you will be my people. Paul goes along the same line in Romans chapter 8. What shall we, verse number 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he... Not with him also freely give us all things. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors. How? Through him that loved us. Through him. Christ died. Christ loved. Christ keeps. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. God's love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice, folks, as you read through that, how none of it is dependent upon you. It is not about how faithful you are, how diligent you are, how zealous you are, how committed you are, how righteous you are. It is all about him. All about him. His love, his faithfulness, his commitment, his salvation, his son. 
Our security, folks, is in God, not in us. This does not become some magic key to unlock the box of immorality, but it is our true security. We are, as Peter said, saved and kept by the power of God. To go back to the book of Ruth, so note we notice firstly that it is his firmness that secures our standing. Secondly, we would note that it is his fruitfulness that sustains us. Verses 11 through 17 of the book of Ruth. We note that there is still a godly remnant in Bethlehem, Judah. And again, I would just point out, folks, for the sake of reminding us, that this is a book that occurred during the days of Judges, when the characteristic of Judges was every man that did that which is right in his own eyes. That is generally true, but it is not absolutely true. There were people like Boaz, even in a godless day. It is generally true that in the days of Elijah, men were godless and faithless, but it is not absolutely true God had 7,000 faithful followers. Let Ruth, these ladies said, be like Leah and Rachel, the mothers of the tribes of Israel. Let your household be like Pharez. And we return, interestingly enough, to Pharez, not, I think, for Pharez's sake, but for Judah's sake. And the Lord gave this woman a, a the Lord gave this woman conception. The marriage was secure. A child was conceived. She bore a son. And you notice, folks, without being egotistical about it, God wants us to notice this. It was God that gave her the child. And the women then blessed the Lord. Verse number 14. The women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman. The Lord gave the fruit, and the women praised the Lord for giving the fruit. His name will be famous. And the idea there is that his name will be repeated. His is the name that will be remembered, recited. And he will be a restorer. Is the way they describe him. Verse number 15. He shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life. Folks, this is, right, this is prophetic. Not only prophetic but prophetic in nature. Almost now two months ago, we talked about that word quite a bit because it is the word return. And we took one Sunday morning and just looked at the way that the book of Ruth talks about turning, returning, turning back. He will be a restorer. He will give you back your life. He will be a nourisher. He is a sustainer. 
And you notice, folks, verse number 16, not to be lost on us. Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. Where did the story begin? <clears throat> death. <clears throat> the story begins with death. Everybody's dying. Two sons dead, husband dead. Famine in the land. I went out full and I came back empty. A woman somewhat jaded who says to her daughters-in-law, go back home and maybe back home God will be kinder to you there than he's been to me here. What has God done? Blessed her out of the abundance of his grace and mercy. I mean, look folks, again, and I realize I keep hammering on this, but this is a book about ultimately, of course, our Savior Jesus Christ of the seed of David. But it is to all the Naomi's in this world, all of those who have some flaw and some failure, whose faith is not exactly up to snuff. You would have lost nothing. You would have looked for nothing if verse number 16 wasn't in there. You wouldn't have said something is missing. But the story is complete, right? A woman who literally believed that she had lost almost everything now has this. The apostles asked Jesus when he left if he, this was when he would restore all things. This is the great promise, folks. The great promise is the restoration of all things, all things made new. We have again just an illustration, one story that demonstrates it. Naomi operated much of her life, in this story anyway, believing that her labor had been in vain and her activities had been fruitless. James tells us, James 5, 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. How long are we supposed to keep at this and hang on for this? Until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Be also patient. Be like the farmer. Wait for the harvest. Establish your hearts. What is the harvest? For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one another against one another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth at the door. And I think that James gives us verse number 9 because the impediment to verse number 8 is oftentimes other people. Why are we impatient and why do we not want to do this? People. Right? Where does the fruitlessness appear to be most evident in our ministry to or relationship with people? Grudge not against one another, brethren. So it is the fruitfulness of God. It is the fruitfulness of God that sustains us. It is the firmness of God that is our stability. 
He saves us. He secures us. Of course we believe. But even our faith is his gift to us, Ephesians 2. And he sustains us out of his own fruitfulness. Which brings me then finally to this. Verses 18 through the end. It is his wisdom that encourages us to trust him. Now these are the generations of Pharez. These are the generations of Pharez. All right, let's just take a minute to talk about Pharez. You can find him in Genesis 38. Judah had three sons. In Genesis 49, Judah had been promised, had been predicted to be the kingly tribe of the nation of Israel. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. You will have the scepter. You will rule. Now here's Judah. Married a Canaanite woman. Three sons born to him. Two of them so wicked that God killed them. Just smote them dead. In a sentence. Boom. Dead. And Judas said to the wife of son number two, wait for son number three to grow and you can marry him. And time passes and sister-in-law, son number three, isn't given to sister-in-law. The boy's mother died. Judah is without companionship. So he seeks company with what he believes to be a prostitute. Only she wasn't a prostitute. She was his daughter-in-law who dressed like a prostitute and sold herself to her father-in-law unwittingly. Now she is pregnant by her father-in-law, Judah. With twins, no less. And at their birth, as if the story could not get any more weird or distorted, at their birth, first a hand emerges. And so the midwife tags the hand so we know who the firstborn is, and this really matters in that world. But then the younger brother is born, and his name is Pharez. A word that means breach, the breaking down or the tearing down or the opening up of a wall. Well, whatever happened to Pharez? Well, here he is. Here is the story of Pharez, verse number 18. These are the generations of Pharez. And again, folks, without trying to be funny, because it is not funny, how sordid would it be to have to explain throughout the entirety of your life that the reason you are there is because your father had a relationship with his daughter-in-law. 
I'm sure this is a matter of public record. There is an ultra-conservative, privately owned liberal arts college in Hillsdale, Michigan called Hillsdale. They accept no federal money. They are that conservative. They want no federal funding. They're a completely private school with some religious roots, but not at all a religious school. And probably 25 years ago, the president of the college resigned in scandal and disgrace because he was having an affair with his daughter-in-law. This is Fayrez's biography. My mother was my father's daughter-in-law. But here's the story of Fayrez all the way down to David. The wisdom of God, folks, the wisdom of God encourages us to trust him. You know, both Ruth and Naomi died before they ever saw the end of this story. David's a long way down the road. So here's a story that begins, folks. Right? Here's the story that begins on a note of distrust. There is a famine in the land, and we don't know where we're going to get enough to eat in the land of bread. So we're going to go to a different land because we think there's bread there. The story begins on a note of distrust. And along the way, God proves time again and again, and again that he can be trusted. The message is timeless for us. We are all born, folks, inherently mistrustful of God. It's part of our depravity. We trust ourselves. We don't really trust each other. I mean, seriously, I'm <clears throat> we tend not to be very trustful of very many people. Look, if I can just <clears throat> if I can just take some of you have had really bad experiences with pastors and their families. And if I could just speak up in defense of pastors for a moment, you don't pastor very long until you find out that one of the real challenges of pastoring is that you don't trust people very much. And when you don't trust people, you tend to circle the wagons, right? And you want to be only around those that you feel like you can trust. We are by nature not very trusting. It's a pretty small world that we trust. And God is not in that world natively. All of our faith issues are ultimately trust issues, aren't they? Can I, can I, if I do what the Lord tells me to do, which seems to be contrary to common sense and sound economics and completely against my personality, if I do what he tells me to do, can I trust him in that? Or is he just going to leave me out here hanging, blowing in the wind? Well, God speaks of that. He could just dismiss it in anger, but he speaks to it. Here is the book of Ruth, folks, a God who can be trusted. 
a God who proves his reliability looking backwards and going forwards. Let's pray. Father, may we trust you. Forgive us for our doubts and our disobedience that arises out of those doubts. Help us to see our disobedience for what it is, lack of trust. Bring us to the experience in our own lives of really trusting you. And help us to live in faith, to do that which you command, to put you to the test, so to speak. That your reliability may be seen both with our souls, with our actions, with our words, with our thoughts, with our finances. Pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.